Hey guys, and welcome to episode 56 of the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Today you're joined by your hosts, Tierra and Jack, for another Q&A. And remember, if you do enjoy this episode, please remember to repost it on your Instagram story, tag myself, tag Tierra, tag the Bodybuilding Dietitians. Also, now that we're heading into the new year, not that this should be any sort of motivation, but if you are interested in getting a hold of us for coaching or just checking out our services, please head over to our website, www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com, or you can find the link in all of our social media bios as well and the notes of the podcast episode. You can also check out our YouTube to see us in video format, and that's also The Bodybuilding Dietitians. And yeah, we'd recommend checking that out as well. So we'll get straight into this episode and we thought we would begin with just a recap of the last two weeks because we haven't actually done one of these episodes for a while. And I'll let Tierra go first. Woohoo! All right. So yeah, I guess it has been about a fortnight since we recorded one of these episodes because we did have Brandon Kempter on the podcast last week, which was just a freaking phenomenal episode. Always such a pleasure to chat to him. But You know, these last two weeks, nothing has been too out of the ordinary, pretty much just trotting along with usual life, you know, coaching, training, comp prep, all that jazz. But uh, yeah, it's been a pretty good two weeks. And, you know, in terms of an update on comp prep, right now I am sitting at 61.5 kilograms. So I think last time I gave an update, I was sitting around the 62 kilogram mark. So, you know, it still has, uh, my body weight still has steadily decreased, which is really good. Right now it is the 26th of December. So I'm sitting at around nine and a half weeks out or 65 days out from my first show with IFBB Queensland, the state qualifiers. And this last week, I've decided to, you know, just give myself an extra push because matter of fact is I just need to be leaner, you know, and I am in a position, you know, mentally, physically where I'm fully capable of pushing a little bit harder. So I have given myself a slight caloric drop. So initially my carbs were at 200 grams, fats were at 35 grams and protein was at 140 grams per day. I do that for five days of the week. And then I have another two high days on Thursdays and Fridays where I bring my carbs up to 300 25 grams which is around maintenance so pretty much what I've just decided to do is give myself a 25 gram drop in carbohydrates on those lower calorie days so now my carbs are just sitting at 175 grams which you know to be honest like it's totally fine Uh, I feel really good still and yeah right now I am just so damn determined to keep pushing I feel I feel really good guys and I feel like I'm finally starting to see all the results pay off because I've been dieting now for almost 17 weeks and man this is just I feel like I've really entered that exciting part of prep where you know you're just seeing daily changes in your body composition and you know it's no lie that seeing the results motivates you to push harder and uh yeah i'm i'm really really happy and you know i'm feeling confident right now and i know that as long as i keep ticking boxes daily and i keep following the plan like i know i'm gonna make it i know that i'm gonna look my best up there on stage so yeah i'm uh, really really determined to just keep pushing i feel good i feel energetic and to be honest these last two weeks 
I just, I feel like there's almost been a turn of event in my training. Like I always have loved training, you know, and I always give it my all. But these last two weeks, especially, I've just felt so damn energetic and strong and just like motivated during my sessions. Like I'll actually be doing shoulder press. And in my mind, I'll be like, oh my God, I really want to train shoulders. (laughs) And then another part of my mind is like, Tiara, you know, you are training shoulders right now. So Man, I'm just uh, feeling really, really good. But yeah, that's pretty much an update on me. And you know, what about you, Jack? So nothing has been too much out of the ordinary with me. My training has been consistent, but unfortunately it hasn't been 100% since about September, just because I have a few niggles. Then nothing crazy injury-wise, but it's just preventing me from training at full intensity. And therefore I feel like I've been treading water a little bit as opposed to making the usual progression that I'd make in the gym. But everyone goes through these things and it's just a matter of working through them, staying positive. And fortunately I've been able to occupy myself with TBD and producing content, looking after clients and yeah, hopefully things pick up business-wise continually in the new year as well. And to finish off on a little update, I guess pretty much the highlight of both of our last two weeks would have definitely been visiting our puppy Sam. So anyone who follows our personal accounts on Instagram would have seen that uh, last Sunday we got to go visit our puppy. She was about five and a half weeks old at that point and she is just the most gorgeous, goofy, little blue-eyed chocolate merle border collie and uh Oh my gosh, I'm just in love. She is, she's so perfect. And yeah, so we do pick her up on the 8th of January, which is less than two weeks now, you know, and we're all prepared. We got all of her bed and her pee mat and her dog bowls and, you know, her toys ready. So really just missing a third family member at this point, but uh, just a matter of a few more days and then there will be three. Yeah, I would describe her temperament as more dignified as opposed to goofy, but dignified yeah for a puppy at least (laughs) all right well i think well half and half half goofy half dignified (laughs) all right so i guess we'll jump straight into the questions now guys we got heaps of good ones this week so uh let's do it jack so the first question is by corinne and she asks thoughts on having to push calories beyond what you can actually stomach down and i'm quite interested to hear tiara's answer to this first (laughs) All right, so my answer to this, I certainly think that Jack could probably speak more anecdotally to this than me because honestly, I've actually never been in a situation where I've majorly struggled to get food down. I am a total foodie. I feel like I could eat the world. You know, I've felt like that ever since I was a kid, just being super active. But, you know, if I was talking to a client about this, it really works in both ways, guys, whether you're dieting or whether you are trying to push body weight up and you are in a quote unquote bulk, right? Because if you have specific goals, you have to do specific things and it can be uncomfortable either way when you are trying to push your body further away from that homeostatic point or where that, you know, that happy point where it feels really, really comfortable. So I think that, you know, in the case of this question, if your goal is to put on weight and push your body composition so that you are a heavier body weight and you are a bigger person, it might be uncomfortable. But if that's your goal, then 
it is something that you do need to do. But we do have to remember that, you know, in order to put on lean mass and put on muscle, you don't have to be in a substantial daily calorie surplus, okay? You don't need to be eating 1,000 calories above your maintenance calories, right? You actually only need to be in a small caloric surplus of anywhere probably between like 150 to maybe 300 calories per day, okay? That sort of little ballpark range because we have to think about, you know, actually putting on muscle tissue it is a very, very slow process. So if you really do want to optimize your lean gains without, you know, drastically putting on a lot of unnecessary body fat, you don't need to be in a huge caloric surplus. But again, in saying that, if you do need to eat more calories than you currently are in order to put on body weight, but it is really just making you feel uncomfortable, I would say that you need to, you know, take a good look at the food composition that you're eating. And, you know, I can definitely pass on to Jack for this because over the years, as his calories have gotten higher and higher, I have certainly seen firsthand his diet change a lot so that he can manage to consume more calories without just feeling sick. So food composition can actually make quite a big difference. For example, if you're having pumpkin at lunch to reach 100 grams of carbs for that meal versus something like white bread with jam. It's gonna be a vastly different meal nutritionally wise, but also energy density wise as well. And I think a lot of people are steered off eating energy dense foods such as like white bread uh, or foods high in sugar because they are seen as not as nutritious as things like fruits, vegetables, whole grains, but there's that definitely doesn't mean you can't make both work so for example prioritizing the energy dense foods prior to training and then consuming the fruits vegetables ensuring you have adequate nutrition for the meals where you know you might be hungrier or it might not impact training so for me that'll look like probably at breakfast and dinner i'll have more nutritional meals like breakfast will usually usually be oats at dinner i'll probably consume all of my veggies breakfast i'll have two pieces of fruit as well uh, whole grains at breakfast whole grains at dinner and yeah lean protein sources of course as well and then uh, my pre-workout meal and post-workout meal where i'm typically the least hungry i'll go for more energy dense foods such as like flour uh, jam uh, easily digestible bread such as fruit toast and stuff like that and yeah even things like white pasta white rice as well uh, very easy and the other point I wanted to touch on as well is in regards to psychology so this is a anecdotal experience to me but it might be helpful for others so I typically do eat pretty similar food types day to day and I found this can be quite detrimental psych psychologically because you kind of know what you're ex gonna experience. So you kind of feel like, oh, I really don't feel like eating rice again tomorrow, or I really don't feel like eating pasta again tomorrow or chicken or beef or whatever it may be. So trying to switch up these meals day to day, even though it will be difficult in terms of time-wise, but nutritionally it is gonna be more beneficial to switch these meals up anyway for greater food diversity. And I think that'll provide a different outlook into going into that meal because you don't know what to expect. It'll be something new, different flavors. So it might actually help in that regard. 
Yeah, I completely agree with everything you've said. And, you know, Jack and I have certainly been victim to that, you know, almost orthorexic, very, very nutritious food, healthy mentality, especially, you know, going through years of a nutrition science degree at university and trying to optimize your diet, you know, in what you think is the best way possible and the most nutritious way possible. You know, we certainly have been victim to trying to eat super duper nutrient rich foods at every single meal, you know, and always steering clear of anything that's processed or anything that might be refined simply because you wouldn't be getting the same nutritional value from, you know, the actual food itself. And again, I've seen Jack go through this, you know, so like not wanting to eat white rice, not wanting to eat white bread. So always eating, you know, very high volumes of so carbohydrate rich foods, but you know, like for dinner, these massive pots of red lentils and like big sweet potatoes and brown rice, you know, and these huge pots of wholemeal pasta, like right before a leg workout. And yes, those foods are super nutrient rich, but damn, the combination of their volume and their fiber they really, really can make you feel very, very full and so satiated to a point that you just feel uncomfortable and sick. So, and we have to remember that, you know, when you are in a calorie surplus and you're still covering all your bases throughout the day, you are still meeting, it's quite likely that you are meeting your nutrient targets for your vitamins and your minerals and your macros and total energy intake. So, you know, if it does make you feel better and you've already consumed a substantial amount of whole grains and vegetables and stuff that day, then, you know, pre-training or in really any meal, it's okay to eat shock horror white bread with jam like it's all right and you know that's something that jack and i have luckily really been able to change our mentality toward you know during these past few years so it's good so yeah don't be scared to you know go for those more energy dense options such as you know gatorade and jelly and stuff like for example you can eat mango chutney maybe instead of eating an entire mango if it would perhaps provide you with the same carbohydrate value if you've covered all your nutrient bases throughout the rest of the day so that is certainly something but Again, like I said at the very start, you know, sometimes whether you're dieting or whether you're bulking, you know, sometimes it just does get uncomfortable when you are trying to push your body composition to a new point. So this next question is by Cam. He asks, is there such thing as being carb sensitive? Now, this is a good question. And interestingly enough, when we first got it, Jack and I actually had a bit of a discussion on what it means to be carbohydrate sensitive. So does carbohydrate sensitive mean that you are very sensitive to carbohydrates in the sense that you can utilize a lot of carbohydrates? Or does carb sensitive mean that you're very sensitive to carbohydrates in the sense that you cannot consume too many carbohydrates without your blood glucose levels spiking? So I think the latter option there is definitely the one that most people think about because it's associated with type 2 diabetes and stuff like that. But personally, I think that the first option was the one that I cited initially. initially. And it also does make sense to me because if you are not insulin resistant, then you have good sensitivity for 
absorbing and storing carbohydrates as glycogen. And I'm not saying Tierra is wrong. I'm just saying there's two different ways of looking at this. Like you can look at sensitive as a bad thing or like being sensitive to caffeine means that you might get jittery and heart palpitations, but sensitive could also be a good thing in that you respond to caffeine very well as opposed to you fall asleep after a cup of coffee. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I just think is interesting about this question, but also just about how, you know, two minds can interpret the same question in a different way. It's almost like, you know, when you see those people who put transformations up on Instagram and like, you know, my brain would go the left hand side is the before photo. The right hand side is the after photo. But sometimes people switch them around and I get really confused. I'm like, did you gain weight? Like, I just, I, I'm not sure what's going on there. But uh, no, I the way that I do interpret this is that if someone was sensitive to something, you know, carbohydrate sensitive or someone who says, you know, oh, you know, I can't eat much dairy because I'm really sensitive to lactose. The way I interpret that is, okay, you know, they're sensitive to a small amount of lactose, so they can't consume much. Otherwise they get sick and they get diarrhea. So that's the way I kind of interpret it. But Either way, so if, how do we answer this? Should we answer it my way or your way? Well, I don't think it matters because I think what the, what most people are thinking when someone says carb sensitive is that if I eat carbs, am I going to be more prone to gaining weight? Because that's what the fitness industry looks at carbohydrates as, mm -hmm. as bad. Yeah. So I guess some people do think that they can't tolerate a high amount of carbohydrates because yeah, their cells can't utilize that glucose and their blood glucose levels will be spiked for an extended period of time, you know, indicating signs of having type two diabetes perhaps. But you know, Jack and I have spoken about this before and you know, talking about insulin insensitivity. And guys, it's not usually brought on by consuming a high carbohydrate diet. It's actually brought on by having very high levels of fatty acids in the blood because usually someone will eat in a caloric surplus for an extended period of time. They'll put on body weight and their fat cells will actually start to release and they almost start to spill over in a sense and release triglycerides and fatty acids into the bloodstream. And having elevated levels of triglycerides and fatty acids in the bloodstreams does interfere with our cells because those fatty acids can cross the cell membrane, they go into the cell and they interact and interfere with this thing called IRS, which is insulin receptor substrate. So those fatty acids interfering with that substrate stops it from activating the GLUT4 receptor. So that's that receptor that comes up to the cell surface and it actually takes up glucose and brings it into the cell so that we can create energy in our cells. So it's really not carbohydrate, guys. It's actually usually elevated levels of fatty acids in the blood. Okay, so now that we have that clear, answering the question, I'm sorry, we keep going on these, uh, on these little digressions, but can you be carb sensitive? Yes, the short answer is yes, if you have poor insulin sensitivity. But I think what people wanna know is, am I gonna get fat if I eat carbs? Especially after 6 p.m. at night. <laughs> and the answer to that is no unless you're eating in a calorie surplus and uh, because carbohydrates, they get stored, you utilize them for energy. But again, if you eat too much, 
they will undergo de novo lipogenesis and they will be converted to fatty acids and adipose tissue. So yes, you can increase fat mass from eating carbs, but just like any other macronutrient, it has to be in excess. So if you're sedentary and you're eating in a calorie surplus, then yes, you will gain weight, but they are very, very important to be utilized through for energy intensive purposes like exercise. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say, you know, for the average healthy individual who's doing regular exercise, they're watching what they eat. You don't need to be worried about whether or not you're consuming a few too many carbohydrates because it's likely that you do do have good insulin sensitivity, you know, and you are utilizing those carbohydrates and that glucose as fuel, which is a really good thing. But if you are overweight or you do live a very, you know, sedentary lifestyle and you aren't moving very much, combined with a very, you know, poor quality diet that is very nutrient poor, then yes, you could have signs of insulin insensitivity. And if you were to consume the same amount of carbohydrates as your friend next to you, who's quite active, it's quite likely that your blood glucose levels would be spiked for a longer period of time compared to them because you know those that glucose just couldn't get into your cells as quickly and as efficiently as you know your active friend next to you who uh, went for a run this morning. So yeah, that's pretty much it. But just like anything, don't fear carbohydrates. You know, focus on the bigger picture. Focus on being active, eating a wholesome diet, you know, and maintaining a healthy body weight and you're in the clear, you know, enjoy your potatoes, enjoy your fruit. It's all good. Yeah. Hopefully that was a quick and efficient answer for you. <laughs> so we'll move on to the next question, which is, is taking a rest day due to DOMS on what would normally be a training day? Is this okay? So I have a couple of assumptions that I'm going to make in regards to this question. So the first one is that the DOMS that you have is quite severe because it is normal to have a small amount of DOMS and train the following day. And the other factor that needs to be considered is let's say you do a push day, you have quite a lot of chest and shoulder DOMS, which is also fairly normal after a push day. Uh, but again, also not having DOMS is normal as well. But the next day I would be asking, are you training chest and triceps again? Um, or are you training something like legs or back? Because if you're training the same muscle group the next day, then I'm also going to be asked why you're doing that as well. So the answer to the question would be in regards to programming. And the first one, are you doing too much in that one session where it's just leading to excessive DOMS? The second one, why are you training the next, the same muscle group the next day? So if you're, if you have chest DOMS, then you should be training legs or back. Yeah, absolutely. I would think the exact same thing, you know, thinking about programming. But, you know, again, in saying that it might be a special circumstance. So as we know, delayed onset muscle soreness, it usually does come from doing exercises that you aren't accustomed to. So let's say that you've just started a brand new training program, right? And you're doing a whole bunch of movements that maybe you have never done before. Maybe you haven't done for a couple weeks or a couple months, right? Moving your body in that new movement pattern, it is likely to lead to some level of soreness. So yes, that can certainly happen. Uh, but yeah, if you were training a specific muscle group one day, I'd say that you still should be able to train another, another muscle group the next day. So yeah, if you're training chest and shoulders and the next day you're training legs, 
like your chest and shoulder doms shouldn't interfere with you training legs. And as we know as well, from a recovery standpoint, actually increasing blood flow and circulation can actually help with delayed onset muscle soreness, you know, removing some of those metabolites, you know, kind of getting rid of a little bit of that inflammation in those muscles. It really, really can help to relieve some of that soreness, which is a good thing. But yeah, I would say that as long as it's not excruciating pain, and if it is excruciating pain, I would question what, what, what have you programmed, man? What did you do in that training session? Uh, then yeah, you should still be able to train. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. And if it is quite bad, then I would, or you think it'll risk injury or you know you won't be able to reach your certain goals for that session uh, weight-wise, then I would just do like a low-intensity session and just get blood into that area because I think that will help with relieving DOMS. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, if this is happening on a reoccurring basis, and let's say that your program was just fine. So let's say that you were training legs twice a week. You know, you were training legs on a Tuesday and a Friday. And you know, weeks on end, you always found that your hamstrings were still sore on your Friday session from your Tuesday's leg session, then I would have a good look at your program and say, okay, you know, how much hamstring work am I really doing on that Tuesday leg session? Can I perhaps cut the volume down a little bit so that it doesn't impede my recovery, but it still provides that stimulus? So finding that perfect balance, it does take some trial and error, but you know, it's totally worth it in the long run. So just track your data and try to pay attention to these things. And uh, yeah, just um, stay well hydrated, get a good night's sleep. And remember to, I think doing some stretching and some foam rolling after your training sessions really, really does help to relieve DOMS in the later days. I've just found anecdotally, obviously the research is still mixed on that, but I, I don't think there's anything wrong with just doing some light stretching. All right, so moving on to another question. This one was asked by Lawrence and it says, plans and goals for the business podcast and you guys in 2020. Damn, what an exciting question. And I can't believe it's already been an entire year since we answered a question very similar to this. I think back on like episode four last year or something. Yeah, great question. Thanks for asking that, Lawrence. And in terms of the podcast, I think if we could make the same amount of progress that we've made this year, that would be pretty fantastic. And yeah, I'll set that as a benchmark. So if we can do even better than that, that would be amazing. And in terms of the business, just continually building up my client base would be fantastic and having a very consistent growth in that area. And yeah, trying to, I would like to bring more clients to the stage, um, whether it be nationally or overseas as well. That would be also fantastic because that's a passion of mine, but also I do gain a lot of satisfaction and enjoyment from helping everyone else achieve their goals. And to be honest, most of my clients uh, have lifestyle goals as opposed to competitive goals. So in terms of my own personal goals, I would really love 2020 to be the year where I don't get any setbacks for training, whether that be injury, niggles, etc., sickness. And because, yeah, for the last... This is quite a depressing statistic, but in the last two years, I've had 12 months off from training optimally due to injury. And yeah, it would be amazing if I could just have one year prior to my 
2021 debut season B where I could just make as much progress as possible. And I know it's not really up to chance, of course. It's really how I approach it. And yeah, I'm going to hopefully work with a physio more closely in terms of trying to prevent anything that occurs. But so far, to be honest, most of my issues that have arisen uh, seem to be due to not random, but like unpredictable circumstances like my tricep tendonitis, like just crept up on me. It's, it wasn't like I was doing a one hour and bench press and I injured my tricep. Same with, I have a glute max strain as well. And I literally did a leg workout, woke up two days later and I was in pain in my glute. So it's not like there was a instance while squatting or RDLing for that injury as well. So yeah, that's my personal goals. Ah, uh, yes. If I could have a wish, not necessarily a goal, it would certainly be for you to, uh, stay injury free during all of 2020 as well <laughs> and maybe get to 100 kilograms that would be pretty cool too <laughs> uh but to be honest man 2020 it's gonna be a freaking epic year and you know my ultimate goal is just to keep up the momentum that jack and i have built in 2019 so Obviously, you know, keeping up the momentum with this podcast, we have just been blown away by the people we've been able to connect with literally worldwide, you know, and the new friends we've created and the clients we've been in contact with and, you know, the super insightful conversations and interviews we've had with professionals in the field. I just want to keep up that momentum. I want to keep delivering you guys, you know, really good educational content that you enjoy and... Oh, I'm just, I'm really, really excited. I want to build up my client base too. So, you know, I can help more people and I can work with more people across the globe. Obviously, you know, m one of my major personal goals is for the first half of 2020, you know, just doing my absolute best in all of my competitions and, you know, just making myself really, really proud and knowing that I've given it absolutely everything. So, that's a huge goal for me. You know, our lives are about to change with our uh, with our new puppy Sam arriving in two weeks. So a huge goal is going to be to train her for the next year and um, have her be the best frisbee catcher on the block and you know just the wonderful most the on the block. No, in the park <laughs> in, in Brisbane. In all of Brisbane, we're gonna have the best frisbee catching dog. Twenty twenty goals. <laughs> no, but honestly, that's gonna be be a wonderful part of our year and man it's just gonna be awesome you know we're gonna have travel opportunities we're going to be going down to Melbourne for Arnold's we're gonna be going down to Sydney for the ICN Nationals post show we've already booked a week holiday away in Bali in June and it would be really cool to be able you know to travel a little bit more Jack and I both have family over in Oxford and over in Washington in the United States so more travel opportunities, but man, keep up this momentum. And uh, I think it's going to be a damn freaking good year and a damn good start to a new decade. So pretty freaking keen. All right. So we'll move on to another question. And I think this is a pretty good one for Jack to answer because he's experienced this before. It says tips to help avoid being nauseous during heavy leg workouts. Yeah, this is a good question. And as Tierra said, it is something that I have experienced before and I probably get it fairly often as well, like probably two or three times a month. So yeah, nauseous during leg workouts. 
And anecdotally for me, this is mainly due to food choices prior to the workout. So I usually train at around midday and I have lunch at around 11 a.m., so about an hour before. And I find that if I, one, eat too much of a voluminous meal or have too much fiber or eat too close to my training window, then I'll start to feel nauseous because the main reason why is because uh, the parasympathetic nervous system is responsible for rest and digest. And basically a lot of blood flow is directed to your gastrointestinal tract to assist with digestion. However, when you are exercising, it's the opposite. So if you're training legs, then a lot of blood flow is going to be wanted to be directed to your lower extremities. And therefore it's going to be a, basically a battle of blood flow versus your GIT and your legs. And really just ends up in feeling quite uncomfortable and nauseous. And I would say that it's even more exacerbated in the case of legs because it's such a large muscle group and therefore a lot more blood is, needs to be required in that region. And some other reasons for, oh, first of all, ways to solve that is trying to definitely eating well before your workout. Like if you usually eat an hour before, then I would try uh, hour and a half, two hours, two to three hours even. And other factors could be cardiovascular fitness. So if you're doing a set of 10 for squats close to like a one or two reps in reserve, that could make you feel quite out of breath, very high blood pressure, um, might make you feel nauseous as well. But those are the two main reasons that I can think of. Yeah, those would be my two main reasons as well. All like anything else I could think of is possibly just hydration status, you know, just making sure that you are adequately hydrated, you know, and just electrolyte balance too, you know, make sure that you have had a good combination of particularly sodium and potassium, you know, not just in your pre-workout meal, but generally in all of your meals. So hopefully that does help you feel a little less nauseous, but yeah, I think the main thing really is your pre-workout meal. Like, don't bulk it up. I've made that mistake before, you know, where I'll eat like nice cream and oats and a massive salad, and then I'll go and do RDLs or, you know, back extensions, and you taste it, man. It comes back up, and it ain't pleasant, all right? No one, no one likes the taste of acidic celery, so... <laughs> Anyway, look at your pre-workout meal and, uh, and yeah, and actually I've heard that some people actually feel nauseous from consuming too much fluid during their workout. So for example, some people who are consuming pre-workout during their workout or EAAs or, you know, intra-workout carbohydrates or BCAAs or whatever it is, you know, something that's not water, but, uh, you know, some people have felt nauseous from that too. So if that is possibly uh, causing you to feel nauseous as well, you know, again, they're not essential, you know, generally they're not essential for the average individual, unless you're like an endurance runner, then yes, you could potentially have some intra-workout carbohydrates with a little bit of protein, but you know, for your average gym goer, if you're just doing resistance training, you don't really need that, you know, just dedicate those carbohydrates and that protein to your pre-workout meal and your hunky-dory and you don't feel sick. So this next question is, does a protein threshold exist to start muscle protein synthesis? What would happen if I only eat 15 grams of protein per meal? So this is a really, really good question. And, you know, when we're thinking about stimulating muscle protein synthesis. 
A good analogy for it, you know, you've probably heard people use on other podcasts is that it's not so much like a light switch, you know, you don't switch it on and you don't switch it off. It's more like a dimmer. So it either can be dimmering quite low, so you're stimulating a little bit of muscle protein synthesis, or that dimmer is right up, you know, the light is bright and muscle protein synthesis is maximally stimulated. So yes, if you were to only consume 15 grams of protein, also depending on the amino acid composition of that protein, particularly the essential amino acid composition and also the leucine content, that would determine how much muscle protein synthesis would be stimulated, right? But pretty much what they've shown in the literature is that you need, there's two different things to look at. People usually show around 20 grams of a high biological value protein source, usually providing at least two grams worth of leucine, will maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis. But other recommendations, you know, say consume a meal with between 0.4 to 0.55 grams per kilogram of body weight of protein to maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis. So we've just done a little quick calculation and for someone who weighs 75 kilograms, that would be between 30 to 40 grams of protein. And you know, you do still need enough leucine in there around two grams. And it probably would be preferable if you did consume that from a high biological value source, such as an animal source, to ensure that you are getting all of your essential amino acids. Not to say that you can't get that from a plant source, you just have to be a little bit more strategic with the different types of plants you're eating. Yeah, for example, if you had 30 grams of just histidine, which is an amino acid, then it's unlikely to be as effective as consuming all of the essential amino acids and all of the non-essential amino acids, plus an adequate amount of leucine, which is usually around two grams. So final question of the episode, this one is, how often should you bulk and cut? I'm an endomorph and my body loves every time I bulk. Thank you. So thank you for the question. And first of all, I don't think either of us are big fans of the terms like ectomorph, mesomorph and endomorph. Uh, Ectomorph being you find it difficult to store fat, endomorph being the opposite, mesomorph being your typical have a good uh, ability to gain muscle. So if you're in a calorie surplus, you're going to gain weight. If you're in a calorie deficit, you're going to lose weight. If someone is in a thousand calorie surplus, they're going to gain more weight than someone in a 50 calorie surplus. So I think this is what the circumstance that the question asker is experiencing, where when they are bulking, they are consuming probably too much calories on a daily basis and gaining weight too quickly. So maybe they need to lower the surplus that they are consuming because realistically, Sure, there is going to be some genetic difference in terms of how quickly people put on muscle and fat, but it's not going to be enough for you to actually notice it on an acute basis. Um, Maybe muscle gain, yes, like some people can just pick up a weight and put on muscle, but it is unlikely that it's going to be fat. And even if it is, it just means that you're going to need to lower the surplus that you're in um, to maybe gaining weight at around 1% of your body weight per month. So maybe do your calculations to what your current rate of gain is. If it's something like two or 3% of your total body weight a month, that's much too high. You should really be in the range of like 0.5% to around 1.5% per month. 
Yeah, exactly. And it really ties in, you know, with that first question of the day and how we made the point that you don't need to be in a thousand calorie surplus to put on muscle, you know, anywhere between 150 to probably 300 calories per day is just fine. And, you know, you still got to train hard too. You got to provide that stimulus. So um, make sure you know that you're still giving it your all in your resistance training. Recovery is adequate. You know, nutrient quality of the diet is adequate. And yeah, just track as much data as you possibly can. Track your variables and uh, yeah. So that's the end of the episode, guys. However, before we officially finish, we're just going to say as per usual, one thing that we learned this week. So what did you learn, Tiara? I learned how to finally use straps. So if you guys can remember, probably from a few months ago, you know, Jack tried to teach me how to use straps for my RDLs in particular. And I was just, I was such a Gumby. I couldn't get the hang of them and they kept slipping and I was actually able to perform even less reps trying to use straps. But, you know, finally, uh, Jack and I bought some, you know, and I've been practicing and I finally got the hang of them. And I'm so happy because, you know, now with my RDLs, you know, I, I do have good grip strength, you know, I was able to do like sets of 13 with the 35 kilogram dumbbells. Uh, but you know, I always knew that my hamstrings were still stronger than that. So now that I'm able to master straps, you know, finally my hamstrings are giving out before my hands. So, uh, hello to leg gains for me. So that's what I learned this week. (laughs) So Jack, what did you learn? I learned that the pet industry is actually very similar to the human industry in regards to nutrition and health because literally everyone has something different to say or dogs shouldn't eat this dogs shouldn't eat that you have to brush your dog diagonally with little crossovers to to get the best fur dynamics or whatever it may be and yeah it's just i guess it all comes down to money in terms of selling this dried food for this dog and sure sometimes it will be correct just like nutrition however it really has to come from the vet i think just like it has to come from a like a doctor or an allied health professional and we're sort of realizing that because like the breeders say one thing like my relatives say another someone else says this my dog washer says that and yeah it really should i guess even be like an individualized experience for the dog and relying on your vet and that's sort of my take home so far (laughs) Yeah, guys, stay tuned to see what dietitians feed their dog. <laughs> Should be interesting, eh? Yeah, it will be interesting. We'll be selling meal plans for your dogs as well. <laughs> All right, guys, so that is the end of our 56th episode. Thank you so much again for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag myself, tag Jack, tag the bodybuilding dietitians. Tell your family and friends about it, and we will catch you next week.